Let's assume that we're in a classroom, and I tell you that it's time for a church history pop quiz. I'm also going to assume that you're a Protestant, and the question that I ask you to answer is, who said, outside the church, there is no salvation? Most likely, as a Protestant, you would maybe not be sure who said that, but you would be almost 100% sure that that idea that outside the church there is no salvation sounds like something a Roman Catholic would say. Well, what if I told you that you were wrong, and actually, the person who said this was essentially at the front lines of what we understand as Protestantism today, and actually was arguing outside the church there is no salvation against Roman Catholicism? Well, the person that said this was John Calvin who is anything but a Roman Catholic. Well, let's talk about this phrase, why I think it's helpful, and why I think it should make us consider the benefits of belonging to the Church of Jesus Christ. Well, hey, friends, it's Kevin with the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and I'm excited to spend an episode interacting with church history just a little bit. It's been a while since we've done this, but I think this idea of outside the church, there is no salvation is a really interesting topic for us to think about because we have to deal with scripture and how we understand the Bible as it is read and interpreted. And when we weave all of these things together, then we can come to appreciate uh, instances in church history, such as the man by the name of John Calvin, who wrote such a provocative statement, and how we, with our 21st century way of thinking, could read that phrase on its own and automatically have a problem with it, because we're trying to be Protestant. There, there's a lot of irony here, so let me try to interact with these ideas and bring some clarity and hopefully come away benefited from this topic of discussion on this episode. So we have to rewind a little bit in order to understand why we should at first glance have an issue with a phrase, outside the church there is no salvation. Well, today, in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, we find ourselves in American representations of Christianity on one of two sides. There's not a massive Eastern Orthodox representation in the United States compared to Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, and those two really are uh, the two sides of the debate that you see with uh, a large amount of representation here in the U.S. You have that phrase that could be attributed to either side, but at least as Protestants, we might hear outside the church there is no salvation and immediately think of the distortions of Roman Catholicism. We might think of issues that led to the Protestant Reformation, such as the idea of 
the authority of the Pope, papal authority, or the priestly absolution of sin and guilt, or the way that there was such a upholding of the institutional church that the two were seen as the same reality, the church and salvation. There was such an emphasis in the system of Roman Catholicism, the seven sacraments that they acknowledge, and all the ways that those weave together to promote or allow or grant salvation in the individual, so that if you remove yourself from the institutional Roman Catholic Church, you have also removed yourself of any possibility of salvation, because salvation is embedded in the institutional structure of the church, according to how Roman Catholic belief is described. So as a Protestant, you hear outside the church, there is no salvation. You might think, oh, that's a prime example of the distortion that Roman Catholics see in the idea of salvation and even the idea of the church, because the church is as much an institutional structure as it is the individual people that make up the church. Whereas Protestants, we emphasize not the institutional structure of the church as the essence of the church, but what even Presbyterians might spend time talking about, the invisible church, all of God's elect people, all Christians in all times, all places, uh, represented in various denominations, and certainly even throughout church history, even represented among Roman Catholics in spite of the bad teaching and bad theology that happens in that context. So it might be very surprising, maybe even a a shock value, when you realize that John Calvin himself said, outside the church there is no salvation. Now we have to appreciate the context here before we can appreciate why this was said. So I said I, we need to rewind a little bit, and so let's do that now. Let's rewind from the 21st century way back to the 1500s, when the aftermath of the medieval Roman Catholic Church has reached its apex. You have Martin Luther, who writes his 95 theses to try to reform the church from within. He didn't want to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to see Reformation take place. He wanted to see them go back to their roots. He wanted to see them uh, go back to what they had beforehand been focused on and had become distorted and adulterated along the way. And of course, none of that happened. Instead, uh, Martin Luther was ousted from the Roman Catholic Church, and you have the birth of Protestantism, the Protestant Reformation as we know it today. And you have kind of the second generation of Martin Luther in the person of John Calvin and his contemporaries, John Calvin living about one generation behind uh, Martin Luther. And you have John Calvin's own break away from Roman Catholicism and 
one of the things that made him especially famous was his book called Institutes of the Christian Religion. That book, throughout the course of John Calvin's life, became bigger and bigger with all of the uh, additional details that he added to it with each new publication. But originally, it was not a very big book, but it always was written as kind of an apology, a defense, for Protestantism. John Calvin wrote an even smaller book called The Necessity of the Reformation. But not counting that, you could even say that the Institutes of the Christian Religion was meant to be a description, a defense, an apology of what Protestantism was all about. And an interesting way that John Calvin makes his arguments in the Institutes of the Christian Religion is by citing the early church fathers who all, practically speaking, were Roman Catholics. And John Calvin builds his biblical and historical defense of what he and Martin Luther and others uh, were saying uh, by making the argument that they were not revolutionaries. They were reformers. They were trying to go back to what used to be the case and what always was the case according to Scripture. And so Calvin is citing Augustine and countless other uh, examples of Christians throughout history and showing how what he was saying and what other Protestants were saying was right in line with what their predecessors were saying. And it's Roman Catholicism that is standing in opposition uh, to what the historical teachings had been. It's a very important point to make because it helps us remember that it's the Protestant Reformation, not the Protestant Revolution. Uh, You have, let's say, Mormons, for example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Their idea is that the church did essentially die off, and now you have the rebirth of it, uh, centuries, even more than millennia after the fact, Uh, but it's very much something new. It's very much a uh, revolutionary effort on the part of like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and things like that, whereas uh, Protestants are not guilty of breaking away of over 1,500 years of church history and trying something new and revolutionary. Uh, Instead, they are disassociating themselves with Roman Catholicism, who, although was recognized as the standard, as the institutional church, had nevertheless broken away from the gospel, broken away from the historical foundation of Christianity. And that's kind of the argument that Calvin is making in his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And in his argument, he is trying to separate himself from the errors of Roman Catholicism, as well as showing that it is vital for us to stay tethered to the church. We have to understand who the church is, and it is not the institutional Roman Catholic system with all of its distortions left intact. It is instead 
the church of Jesus Christ himself, who he has raised, who he is building and sustaining throughout the centuries. So Calvin goes to great lengths, not only in distancing what he is saying from Roman Catholicism, but also to present his case as an actual contrast to Roman Catholicism. Here's what Calvin says. Here's a quote. He says, Guarding pious readers against the corruptions of the papacy, that is, the Pope in general, and more specifically, the entire institutional structure of Roman Catholicism, against the corruptions of the papacy by which Satan has adulterated all that God had appointed for our salvation. End quote. So his presentation of the church and salvation at the very outset is an alternative to the way in which Roman Catholicism had and even continues to present church and salvation in the institutionalized church and salvation in that hierarchical structure that we see in all of the sacraments that Roman Catholicism has and, and their whole idea of the Pope and confession booths and everything kind of brought together in their version of the church and salvation. So what does Calvin mean here, though? Well, his point is essentially this. Salvation means, and we can even describe it this way, salvation is an act of God whereby we are unified to God in Jesus Christ. And so now we have to apply kind of a logical uh, progression here. If this salvation is the same inheritance to all who are unified in Christ, then it necessarily follows that those who enjoy this union with Christ can and should enjoy that union together. Here's the way that this argument comes in. Calvin says, for unless we are united with all the other members under Christ, our head, no hope of future inheritance awaits us. All the elect of God are so joined together in Christ that as they depend on one head, so they are, as it were, compacted into one body. Now, this is an important argument because he's pulling this straight from the Bible. Calvin goes on further to elaborate probably the most important analogy of believers that are used by the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament, and that analogy is the body of Christ. You're thinking specifically of Ephesians chapter 4, for example, uh, Ephesians 4.11 and 12 and so on. Calvin is alluding to that passage by saying that God has gifted the church with the means of grace in the ministry of the word and the sacraments, which for Protestants we understand as the Lord's Supper and baptism, two sacraments, not seven. But this is not just a technical issue here, because Paul mentions this teaching ministry and the gifts that God gives, the means of God's grace, the way that God's grace is experienced, the way that he applies that to us 
throughout our Christian experience is in the context of the church, according to Paul, not according to Rome, not according to Calvin, according to Paul in Ephesians, that God gives these gifts to the church in the ministry of the Word of God primarily, and the outworking of that ministry, including the sacraments that communicate the truth of His Word. So Paul mentions this teaching ministry in Ephesians 4 as the way that the body of Christ is joined together, the way that the body of Christ is matured, the way that it is nourished, and the way that it stays healthy. So Paul's argument in Ephesians 4 is that there is one body and one spirit. That's Ephesians 4, verse 4. And that the ministry of the church is for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 12. And it's so that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. So it's a beautiful picture of how we view the way the church is presented in the Bible. Church and salvation are intricately connected together. And the reason for that is not because of some lavish institutional structure or some kind of sequence of events, uh, like belonging to a social club and you have to make your way through the ranks and rise to the next level and you're privy to more knowledge the higher up you go and uh, you become more enlightened the higher up you go. That's not the idea. Uh, the idea is this organic body that grows and matures, that feeds on the nutrients, that progresses, that remains healthy, that is protected from trouble. And the inner workings of all of this is, of course, God himself, who is raising up his church. But the way that he does that is among all of the members in that body working together. He gifts each member of the body with specific gifts to uphold the other members of the body. And uh, the prime example of that is the teaching ministry that happens in the context of the church, which we can substitute for the phrase, the body of Christ. The members of the body all have a common inheritance, and they all have equal stakes in the benefit and the maturing efforts of the body because they all belong to the same body, but more importantly, because they are all, as they belong to the same body, tied to the head of the body, who in that great analogy is Jesus Christ himself. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. And we, though individual members, are all connected to the head, but to be connected to the head, we're also connected to the rest of the body. So in that sense, we would describe outside the church there is no salvation as a completely sound statement. 
Because if the church is the body of Christ and salvation is belonging to Jesus himself, that means we belong to the head of the body, which can only be true if we also belong to the rest of the body. And so it makes the level of importance of belonging to a local congregation, of going through life with other Christians, of benefiting from the gifts that God has given to his people. It makes all of those things less than just a matter of personal preference, if you're into that kind of thing or not. But it makes it a command. It makes it a gigantic, massively important matter when we consider that if we're running around saying that we're Christians and that we have a personal relationship with Jesus, and yet we are completely cut off from the rest of the body, it makes that claim quite hard to believe and even harder to prove. Because according to the Bible, to have one is to have both. To belong to the people of God is to belong to God himself. And to belong to God is also to belong to his people, whom he has also raised up in that one body. Now, of course, we can run into crazy legalistic directions here. But this reminder is not meant to make us approach church attendance as some sort of legalistic endeavor where we keep God happy or some way that we consistently week in and week out prove that we're saved or that we owe lifelong loyalty to a specific local congregation regardless of what kind of things might happen there. That's not the right way to respond to this kind of idea and this kind of uh, thought process that we're working through. But it does remind us that going through life and belonging to God's people is not merely presented to us as optional. It's assumed that we're going to associate ourselves with other Christians. It's assumed that if we long for God, then we long to be among the place where he is working. We long to be where he is dispensing his gifts and graces to us. And according to the Bible, that is primarily in the context of the local church. That's where that stuff happens. That's the means that God himself has appointed to mature us, to protect us, to keep us spiritually strong, to keep us tethered to him. And so we can understand, not in an institutional sense, but in the sense of the unity and the fellowship that is afforded to us in the gospel, we can certainly understand the statement, outside the church there is no salvation. Now, I don't think that Calvin meant 
this phrase as a hard and fast idea. In fact, in my own Christian tradition of Presbyterianism, we use the Westminster Confession of Faith as our doctrinal standard and the catechisms that also are pinned uh, in uh, the Westminster theology. And the way that they put this phrase is by qualifying it by saying outside the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Because there's all, there are hypothetical instances, okay, such as the thief on the cross, right? He is saved before his death, uh, but he never did spend a life belonging to uh, God's people and going through this kind of process. Uh, there are examples throughout church history where uh, belonging to a local congregation um, was not possible because Christians were being persecuted. They were fleeing for their lives or being killed if they tried to do that. So this certainly doesn't mean that if your name is not on the role of some local church and church attendance, that that automatically means that you can't be a Christian, nor will you ever will be a Christian. But it does remind us that the idea by appreciating what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4 and thereby appreciating what Calvin is saying in his book that the right way for us to respond is not by looking at what caveat we can cling to uh, to get us outside of this uh, stipulation. What is the escape hatch here? What is the, oh, by the way, uh, that we can escape from having to live under this obligation of faithful church attendance and a robust community alongside other Christians. We should not be looking to see what we can get away from and how much we can get away with. Instead, we should look at this as a loving reminder from God to be about the business of what he himself is about the business of. And he tells us that he has plenty of gifts for us. And if we are Christians, he has plenty of gifts to give his people through us. And so there is an obligation, there's an honor, there's a privilege to be alongside other Christians, to commit ourselves to faithful attendance and fellowship in the context of a local church. And so my encouragement to you, if you want to be a better Bible reader, you need to appreciate what is said here in Ephesians 4. And that means that your call to action is to ensure that you yourself do belong to a local fellowship of God's people, that you are under the authority, the discipline of his word, that you are drinking from the fountain that he is giving you through his people and that you also are pouring into other Christians with the gifts that God has given you. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. I hope this little trip down church history uh, has been thought-provoking at the very least, uh, but maybe it'll just encourage you to go back and read Ephesians chapter 4 and appreciate the way 
that salvation ties us to Christ himself, but also, by consequence, other Christians. Well, have a great rest of your day, and thank you for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris.